0: This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Are you looking to save 50, 60, even 70% on your phone bill? Well, here's a tip. Broadvoice.com. Hi, it's Brad Staggs of Blaze TV here. Broadvoice offers high-quality phone service for only $8.95 a month. You may ask, how can I save so much money? What's the catch? Well, the secret is the technology. Broadvoice uses VoIP technology that takes analog audio signals from your phone, turns them into digital data, and then transfers them over the Internet. do what we did here at blaze radio make the switch today at broadvoice.com or call 888-332-8036 888-332-8036
1: This is the Glenn Beck Program.
2: Welcome to the Glenn Beck Program. I'm John Cardillo, sitting in for Glenn. Give us a call, 888-727-BECK, 888-727-BECK. You can also follow me on Twitter, at John Cardillo. We're going to be live-tweeting some of the more interesting segments of the show today. Sitting with me is Tiffany Gabay, my executive producer, co-host. And uh, I want to tell you a little bit about me, because many of you are just tuning in. You might not have tuned in for the last uh, the last hour, or you may just be tuning in for the first time. I was also here yesterday, but uh, you might have been still on your Christmas break yesterday. And uh, my background was law enforcement and business, with, uh, with a strong foothold in the legislative arena during both. And I was the guy that was being called on shows like Lens to give my subject matter expertise, do analysis, realized our country was in a bit of a, a bad place and decided to take the message to the public full time. So I host a radio show down in Florida. I've got a pretty strong presence on Twitter. I, I write for various sites and uh, decided to share some of my expertise, some of my experiences with all of you. And, and really, we live in a world where that couldn't be timely, that fusion of my law enforcement experience and uh, my time as one of those evil donor class guys with my business, seeing how after testifying to geez, 15, 20 legislatures, state legislatures, uh, the U.S. Congress, U.S. Senate committees, I sat on, a, on an internet safety and security task force, convened at a Harvard Law School, I saw how policy is made and, and really how laborious the process is. And, and, and it concerned me because we live in a pretty dangerous world. And one of the things that scares me these days, one of the things that that keeps me awake, we talked about this yesterday. I had a friend of mine on the show here uh, who was the chief of intelligence of NYPD, really a world expert on terror. And we were talking about the things that keep us up at night. And the things that keep me awake at night are low-tech, asymmetrical attacks. And, And simple speak, what that means are three guys in a room, three jihadists in a room, planning The mass shooting in a mall or planning the the, the planting of a pressure cooker cooker bomb at the Boston Marathon or another marathon or uh, under the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree or uh, Times Square at New Year's Eve. Because those kinds of attacks are the ones that are nearly impossible to interdict. They're the ones that are nearly impossible to uncover before they happen. There is no chatter. It's a couple of guys in a room who know each other for 20 years. They know that that each other are not FBI informants or police informants. They know they're not wearing wires. They don't have to use any kind of electronic communication device. They can simply go to the local Starbucks and plan this attack. And it's low tech. You can go to any hardware store, any homeware, houseware store, and buy the, the implements you need to do this. And so those are the things that keep me awake at night. So it's very scary to me when we see world leaders do things that seem to me anyway... To be somewhat suicidal in nature. We have the head of the European Union, the president of the European Commission, Jean Claude Juncker, or Junker, which would be more appropriate with this policy, where he warns against the rhetoric of exclusion and that terror only takes us if we allow it. Now, I think uh, 3,000 people who perished on 9-11, uh, 2,977 people who perished on 9-11, would, would seriously disagree with that statement, especially those heroes who fought back on the, on the flight that crashed into Shanksville, Pennsylvania. They would take great exception to that. I think the 343 New York City firefighters who perished rushing back into those buildings after saving thousands of lives, well, they would really take exception. I know it offends me as a former NYPD guy. Uh, it, it's a reprehensible statement. It's a terrible statement. But but this guy, Junker, over in in the EU, feels that if you open your borders and allow refugees in, that somehow helps you fight terror. Now, that was bad enough until Prince Charles, who, by the way, whose sons have, have done an exceptional job in the war on terror. Prince Harry was out there on the front lines. Prince William is a helicopter pilot rescuing people. So for Prince Charles to say what he said really, really offended me, and I know it offended many others. If you haven't heard it, this is what Prince Charles said.
0: And we might also remember that when the Prophet Muhammad migrated from Mecca to Medina, he did so because he, too, was seeking the freedom for himself and his followers to worship.
2: And what he he was really saying was that we should remember the Prophet Muhammad on Christmas. Now, it seems innocuous, but it isn't. Because groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, they thrive on, they look for, they feed off of weakness. It's their energy. Weakness is their is their gasoline. It's their battery power. Fear, they're terrorists. They exist to terrorize. So they don't listen to Prince Charles, the ceremonial of, of heir apparent of England. They don't listen to him and say, well, he's open-minded. Let's give the guy a break. They say, that's a mark. That's a victim. Let's go get him there. Terrorists are no different than any other street thug I locked up when I was a cop in the Bronx. They, they do things on a grander scale, but it's the same deviant criminal mind, the same murderous killer mind. For him to say this really sends a terrible, but, but more importantly, a dangerous message to al-Qaeda, to ISIS, to Boko Haram, to al-Shabaab. It's an invitation to come in and murder his people. And that's all it really is. And, and if you know your history... You know that Mohammed's little pilgrimage down in Mecca was not a peaceful journey. Yeah,
1: he wasn't minding his own business in Mecca.
2: They were lopping a lot of heads off along the way and that wasn't by, you know, that wasn't just happenstance. That wasn't by chance.
1: Exactly. You know, by the sword that was uh, right. that was Mohammed's mantra and, you know, 30 battles, invasions, conquests, slaughtering people Jews in particular. And uh, and on Christmas, that's the message we have to hear from Prince Charles. But you know, I've told you this, John. This is what the multiculturalists don't get. The Islamic terrorists use our Western values against us. They see as you said, tolerance as weakness and, and every time we vow, you know, not to 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 basically look at people refugees with suspicion and to not give them the gift of our hatred, that is exactly what they want because they know we'll be sheep to the slaughter.
2: Well, yeah, and if you if – you, there have been stories breaking recently uh, about the interrogators who's, who interrogated uh, the guys close to Bin Laden, his drivers, his bodyguards. The philosophy has always been to use our PC culture against – they laugh at us. They mock us, the terrorists. I, I interface with a lot, of, a lot of intelligence people, guys that were uh, CIA, DIA, that worked in NYPD intelligence, the federal agencies, and to a person. I mean, they are students of this. And, and most of these people, you know, I, I think people have this, this, this conception of your CIA field officer, your, your intelligence uh, agent, you know, whether they be FBI or NYPD, the cops, as just gun-toting gunslingers out there, these guys who grow beards and strap M4s on their chest. But my friends who worked in that world are top-tier academics, Harvard Law School, Fordham Law School, Georgetown, Cornell, Johns Hopkins. These are great minds. And one of the things they do, more than clean their weapons and gear up and train, the thing they probably do most is research, is academic research on the the mind of the Islamic terrorists on the history of Islam. Going out into the field probably accounts for 20% of what they do. 80% is that research, understanding the enemy. And they will tell you, to a man, to a woman... That they use our politically correct open-mindedness against us, they being the terrorists. They want us to silence people who say, well, maybe you, you should look at Islam. Maybe you should look at radical Islamists over, say, Catholics or Protestants or Mormons or Jews. Because those groups aren't out there slaughtering wholesale. But when we dare do that, when we dare do that, we're Islamophobic, right? If you, we, Law enforcement around the country tells us, if you see something, say something. But if you dare do... You're an Islamophobic. Islamophobic, oh, you're an Islamophobic, racist, bigot, xenophobic. Don't you dare call. You've got four Islamic guys living next door, all under the same name of a guy who, by the way, was deported to Pakistan under the Patriot Act seven years ago, and they're hauling unmarked boxes into their garage and shutting the door and not talking to the neighbors. Don't you dare say a word, you xenophobe, you Islamophobe. And I use that example because that's an actual case. Somebody actually, a friend of mine, had that situation. And we alerted NYPD intelligence, and it turned out these were bad guys. These guys were terror fundraisers living in an apartment in Brooklyn. This is happening. And, and one of the things that we've been, we've been sold a false bill of goods by the Obama administration, a very false bill of goods. Well, two false bills of goods, one by the Obama administration, one by the left. One is that vetting of refugees from Middle Eastern Muslim nations, 34 nations of terror concerns, can be done. The other is that profiling... As a, as a criminal justice tool, is ineffective and a bad thing. Both of those are, are bad bills of good. Both of those are false narratives. And I'm going to tell you why when we come back. Stick around. You're with John Cardillo, The Glenn Beck Program.
0: You're listening to The Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Are you looking to save 50, 60, even 70% on your phone bill? Well, here's a tip. Broadvoice.com. Hi, it's Brad Staggs of Blaze TV here. Broadvoice offers high-quality phone service for only $8.95 a month. You may ask, how can I save so much money? What's the catch? Well, the secret is the technology. Broadvoice uses VoIP technology that takes analog audio signals from your phone, turns them into digital data, and then transfers them over the Internet. This means crystal clear sound and cheaper phone bills. Broadvoice has been ranked in the Deloitte Technology Fast 500 and Inc. 500 as one of the fastest growing private companies in America. Get Broadvoice right now for only $8.95 a month. Keep your existing phone number for free and Broadvoice will send you their easy plug-in adapter free. All this and you get unlimited local calling for just $8.95 a month. Plus, for a limited time, Broadvoice will even give you your first month free. Do what we did here at Blaze Radio. Make the switch today at Broadvoice.com or call 888-332-8036. 888-332-8036. The Glenn Beck Program.
2: Welcome back to the Glenn Beck Program. I'm John Cardillo, sitting in for the vacationing Glenn Beck. I want to talk to you about two lies you have been sold over and over and over again by the Obama administration and and Democrats on the whole, progressives on the whole. You've been sold these lies by Barack Obama himself, by his his deputies, by his secretaries, by his, his appointees, the heads of his departments. You've been sold this lie even harder by the mainstream media. Lie number one. <clears throat> Lie number one is that we can vet the refugees and, and those who even well, aren't even established refugees from 34 nations of terror concern around the world coming into the United States, whether, uh, be, be, whether they be official refugees or they pour across the southern border. Some estimates – I spoke to a, a senior person in, in ICE, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, just the other day, somebody I know personally – they told me that they they uh, ICE estimates about three hundred thousand people have come across the southern border from thirty four nations of terror concern. Now, if you speak to, if you listen to the mainstream media, if you listen to CNN or you hear Josh Earnest putting uh, something out of the White House, you think that the vetting of a refugee is simple, that it's the same as vetting an American. Well, at the top of the hour, I said that after law enforcement, I was in business, and this is really uh, pertinent because my business was vetting. We were we were uh, vetting and finding. Uh, pedophiles, sexual predators, uh, violent criminals, and terror fundraisers and, and, and within large online communities. I bought tons of data. I attended seminars with the FBI, the U.S. Marshals, at at, at various police academies around the country. I, I interfaced with Interpol, uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. I was trained by, I conducted trainings at these places. And I learned more about vetting than most other people. I was invited to sit on a task force. Uh, convened at a Harvard Law School by all 50 attorneys general to give my subject matter expertise and to learn. And when I hear Barack Obama say you can vet refugees, it is infuriating. So I spoke to a, a very, very close friend of mine, spent 11 years in CIA, and he laughs at this. And he says, you know the way we vetted people in the Middle East? He said when I was deployed, and he's only been out of the field about three and a half years. He said we would drive to a village, say it's Syria. We would, we would have a target or, or somebody that we were looking at. We needed to vet him. We would drive to some village, and we would say, hey, this is Ahmed. He said his dad's name is Muhammad. He was born around 1979, and he said he was born in this village about 20 miles southwest of Damascus. And some tribal elder would say, Yeah or nay, they'd say, Ah, yeah, you know, could be. That's an old picture. It might be the kid. Maybe not. I don't know. Yep, yep. I think that's him. That's probably him. And I know this sounds like I'm being a bit cavalier, and I'm glossing over it, but if you want to be intellectually honest and you talk to the field operators, that's about as good as vetting gets. What the Obama administration has done is they've taken one component, one component of refugee, those that have helped our people, our our troops, our intelligence operatives in the Middle East, people that were known to us, people that were known to be loyal, people who we were able to vet because they interfaced with our personnel for five six seven years so we had a bit of a history on them and they had some documentation well yeah to a certain extent we can vet them See, here in the u.s it's different every adult in the u.s me sitting here behind the mic tiffany gabay sitting here with me in studio all of you listening we have tremendous paper trails on us if you've ever registered a vehicle insured a vehicle if you pay an electric bill if you have a mortgage if you have uh, a credit card. We have tremendous paper trails on us. Any of the big data aggregators could easily generate within a split second, literally in real time, a second, second and a half, about 17 to 20 pages on us, probably 100 pages if we want to uh, know friends of friends of friends based on address histories and connections. It's very easy to vet an American and our, and our data laws make that possible. Try doing that in Canada or the UK or France or Germany. It's virtually non-existent. We tried With my business, we tried to vet bad guys from around the world. The data privacy laws make it very difficult. Then you get to the third world in terms of of infrastructure, technology infrastructure, in the Middle East and Latin America. You can't do it because the data simply doesn't exist. There are no historical repositories of records. So this data doesn't exist. Vetting cannot be done. It's all on the honor system. And color me crazy, but I don't want to trust a potential terrorist. I don't want to take their word for it. And so what do you do if you're going to let these people in? Well, that's a perfect segue into the second lie you've been sold, the lie that profiling and monitoring is a bad thing. Now, profiling is only a bad thing when we talk about potential Muslim terrorists because law enforcement for years, and I can speak to this personally, I'm Italian-American, for years the FBI, the New York City Police Department, Chicago Police Department have been profiling Italian-Americans when they go after La Cosa Nostra, the mob. They use Italian agents and Italian detectives and infiltrate Italian social clubs and businesses that are known to be mobbed up, private sanitation, etc. Nobody complains. In fact, there's a waiting list of guys like me, Italian guys in law enforcement, to get onto those details because they're prestigious. More importantly, it's good law enforcement. It's good investigation. It makes sense. We've done it with the Bloods and the Crips. We deploy black detectives and agents to infiltrate gangs like that. No one complains. Black communities don't complain. They know it's sound policing. We did it with Colombians and cocaine. We do it with Mexicans and the cartels. We do it with various Asian communities. For the Asian gangs, the triads. But only when we want to deploy those same types of of resources to investigate the Arab-Muslim communities for potential terrorists within are we deemed xenophobic, racist, racist. Islamophobic, and we're taking away tremendous tools. And one of the best tools we've ever deployed against terror was what was casually known, colloquially known as the Mosque CI, Confidential Informant Program, in the New York City Police Department. It worked very, very well, and it was not based on religion. The media lied to you. I'll tell you firsthand, as former NYPD, having a very good friend who was a supervisor on that program. The mosque CI program was very simple and very effective. Every day, the NYPD Intelligence Division would go through arrest reports and look for the nation of origin of an individual, not their religion. You could have been a Catholic from Syria. They would have still come and spoken to you and potentially used you as a confidential informant. You might not have been in a mosque, but you still may have lived in a Muslim community as an Arab. They looked for your nation of origin. And oftentimes, this yielded highly actionable intelligence and you were like any other confidential informant. If you were arrested on a minor charge, the district attorney's office would cut a deal with you to reduce or dismiss that charge in return for your testimony, for your help, for your you being eyes and ears on the ground. No civil rights were infringed upon. We do that every day with every other type of crime in law enforcement. We cultivate confidential informants every day. But only, only, when we did it, in the Muslim community, Was there an issue? And we we essentially, and I say we, not we, the progressives, guys like Bill de Blasio in New York, guys like Barack Obama in the White House, wanted to take this highly effective tool, a tool that, you know, luckily we don't know how many lives it saved because we don't want the bad guys knowing too much about how we do and, 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 and what we do. But I can tell you, and what I can tell you comfortably without feeling I've divulged too much on air is that lives were saved. And it was many more than one life that was saved because of these programs. Programs that are constitutionally sound. Because any wiretap that would go on pursuant to finding a good confidential informant still had to have a judge sign off. Whether it be a FISA, the the, uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance uh, Court judge, or, or a regular federal judge, or a local judge. There was oversight. There was constitutionality. There was due process. And so please, don't buy these lies. Push back. On the politicians who sell you progressive narratives that put you and your family in danger. Because this is what I did for a living. These are the people I interface with. Refugees cannot be vetted. Profiling and monitoring is a very, very good thing that has saved countless lives. We're going to be talking more about this. You're with John Cardillo sitting in for Glenn, the Glenn Beck Program. 888-727-BECK. Welcome back to the Glenn Beck program. I'm John Cardillo, sitting in for the vacation in Glenn. Give us a call, 888-727-BECK. That's 888-727-BECK. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at John Cardillo. I'm going to be tweeting the real interesting stuff from the show today. So we've been talking this hour about terror and about some of the the false narratives uh, you've been sold by the progressive left. Uh, with regards to vetting of refugees and regards to profiling of bad guys, no matter who those bad guys are, whether they be Islamic terrorists or La Cosa Nostra, the Italian mob. I don't discriminate. Bad guys who want to hurt people are bad guys. I want to uh, deploy the best tactics to stop them. But one of the things we don't speak uh, about enough, and I'm guilty of this as well on my show, I touch on it, but I don't touch on it anywhere near enough, is a threat that's right here at home. See, if we sealed the borders tomorrow, if, if somehow we were able to wave a magic wand and we were able to build a 20-foot wall around the United States and we were able to mine every harbor and do these draconian, unconstitutional things, we still would only make a slight dent in the terror threat. Now you're saying, Cardillo, you're out of your mind. What are you talking about? You sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist. Well, no, I'm not. Because one of the things you don't hear enough about are the radical converts in prisons remember we've got a very large prison population in the united states now about a year and a half ago i had a uh, uh, pat dunleavy on my show and he's a world expert with regards to uh, prison conversion to islam the radicalization and weaponization of those converts he spent oh, about 30 years at the new york city department of corrections he's written several books on this and then worked with our intelligence community training special operators on how to identify those who might be converts from America on the battlefield overseas. And when we first spoke, I said, well, you know, I'm reading that there are about uh, 30 to 40,000 people who convert to Islam yearly in, in U.S. prisons and jails, right? They're prisons different than jail. Jail is that holding facility for misdemeanors. And before you face trial, prison is where you go after convicted. So whether it be federal, state, local about 30 to 40,000 people convert yearly and I said to him well you know how many though do you think would radicalize and weaponize and he said oh it's 1% or sub 1%. I said okay well that's still a lot that's still 3 to 400 people uh, the Orlando massacre at the at the gay club was carried out by one guy San Bernardino by two terrorists So 3 to 400 terrorists that uh, half of which let's say might potentially be released from incarceration is pretty scary well about 8 9 months later had him on the show again And that's his day-to-day job. He studies this. He trains our special operations community, our intelligence community. I said, so Pat, is the number still hanging around 1%? He said, no, that number is creeping up to 10% with with, uh, the proliferation of ISIS's virtual caliphate and how well they're using social media and how they're spreading their message and going after a younger subset. And so now let's think about how terrifying this is, right? If tomorrow we were able to stop 100% of the immigration uh, to the U.S., from everybody. Forget even those from the 34 nations of terror concerns, from everybody. Somebody that isn't in the U.S. as of right now never stepped foot into our nation. And we were able to somehow wave a wand and get rid of everyone who would ever come here who wanted to commit acts of terror. We would still be converting in our prisons and jails yearly about 3,000 people with the potential to radicalize and weaponize against us. And again, I'm being conservative when, I, conservative when I say half will be released shortly after that. The number's a lot higher because we our jails are overcrowded and we tend to release prisoners long before they should be. And so we, we, while, while we're so focused on the refugee, problem, we need to be, we need to be diligent, we need to be vigilant, while we're focused on that, we also need to keep our eye on the ball here at home. Because if we don't do that, if we put ourselves in a position where we ignore the threat that's already here, where we don't put as much uh, money and time and training and resources into the intelligence component of finding out who these people are, what they're doing. And again, what does that require when they leave prison? Well, that's going to require profiling and monitoring. And like I spoke about a bit ago, the progressive left doesn't want to do that. So they know, they know full well that there is no mechanism right now to track these people once they leave the facilities but one thing i found out about seven eight months ago and tiffany i don't know if you know this uh there's a, a congressman in tennessee and i, I forget his name and uh, i think maybe fincher i'm not sure if that's him uh but, uh but he uh he had sponsored a bill i don't know if it's Quirker though i think it's a uh, fincher something I'll, I'll find that for you he is sponsoring a bill to do something that i assumed was being done and boy was i ignorant And that is to vet clergy that come into prisons. Right now, imams that are coming into prisons who are allowed to speak confidentially with inmates, they have the same confidential privileges as an attorney, they're not vetted. It doesn't matter if that imam preaches Islamic jihad, hellfire, and brimstone night and day, calls for death to America, death to infidels, they can walk into a prison and speak unmonitored, unrecorded, uh, whether it be audio or video, to these prisoners they're allowed to walk into that prison radicalize and weaponize inmates and think about inmates they're already prone to violence they already hate the government because the government incarcerated them and they're predisposed to hate Americans that they've committed crimes upon and we don't have one mechanism in place to vet these people vet the, on the federal level on the state level or at the local level and i believe that law would only apply to federal prison which would still leave all of the state prisons and all of the local jail facilities uh, open and vulnerable To conversion and it really is so dangerous and we're not hearing enough about this. I went back through archives. CNN never I couldn't maybe they did but I couldn't find. Let me preface this by saying I couldn't find one CNN story on this in depth. I couldn't find a Fox News story on this. I saw pieces on blogs touching on this but I could not find an ABC news story, an NBC news story, a CBS news story on this. The mainstream media is ignoring this and they have the intelligence. They're being advised by their contributors, their security, their intelligence contributors are telling them about this. They're not running the stories. And it goes back to ideology, right? It goes back to the ideology of the radical Islamist and the people that they're taught when they're radicalized, they're weaponized. They're not just taught to hate people in general. They're taught to specifically hate Christians. and 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 you, Tiffany, you have family in the Middle East. I mean, you have experience with this.
1: Yeah, um, my family survived Islamic persecution in Iraq. I mean, they fled, they were forced to be refugees. Um, My father fought in the Israeli War of Independence in 48. um, So he fought them during a pogrom in Baghdad as a child, and then again in, in 48 in Israel. And what a lot of Westerners don't understand is that this is truly systemic. Even if a minuscule portion of the world Muslim population will actually pull the trigger and become terrorists, the the greater number actually harbor these very radical ideas that are rooted in the Quran. I mean, there are numerous Quranic verses and hadiths that I could quote that talk about the subjugation um, and hatred for Jews and Christian, to a lesser extent Christians, but definitely Christians as well. And this is systemic in Islam. There is a tribal mindset that the Western world really grapples with and has a hard time understanding. But people who come from the Islamic world, like my family, and, and be they Druze, Christian, Yazidi, anyone who is persecuted, and, and there are obviously wonderful Muslims. I, I don't want to always have to add that qualifier. Of course there are. But by and large, there is a tribal mindset um, that is taught to hate and is taught to basically, you know, oppress and subjugate those who aren't like them.
2: Well, and let me put this in perspective, because you touched on an interesting point and a critical point, right? There are good people around the world, no matter your faith, your, your orientation, your, your race, your creed. And, and so let's be very, very generous here. There's 1.7 billion Muslims in the world. Let's say now, even, even the most progressive analysts will say, and only 1% will radicalize and potentially weaponize as terrorists. Well, that's 17 million. So let's you and I be a little more generous. Let's say half a percent. That's eight and a half million. No, let's say a quarter percent. 4.25 million Muslims around the world. A quarter percent. We're we're one-fourth of what the progressive analysts even will will acknowledge. That's 4.25 million terrorists. The combined strength. Of the United States military, all services, and the active law enforcement community, as we sit here today, is about 3 million. They still outnumber us by 1.5 million. To me, that's scary. And that's a number you don't hear.
1: Listen, even Pew Research did extensive studies. I mean, we are talking about Muslims who want Sharia as the law of the land. I mean, this is in countries that aren't even as radical as Saudi Arabia. The majority want Sharia to be the law of the land. In Egypt... 85% support the executing of apostates. Those are infidels. Those are non-Muslims. Jordan, 82%. Palestinian territories, 66%. Those are being Islamified So so
2: we're being incredibly generous with our quarter percent number.
1: Absolutely. I mean, just because you won't put on the suicide vest yourself doesn't mean that you don't support it emotionally, and otherwise. In our
2: military, in our law enforcement community, for every man and woman in the field or on the street, there's a support network behind them. You can't exist. Without that, it's terrifying. But again, we talked about this pretty much throughout the show today. It all goes back to academia. It's what you learn and where you learn it. And Harvard University, Harvard University, right? That that shining light, that beacon on the hill, that everybody looks to and is guided by in academia. Harvard University is now assisting this, and I'm going to tell you all about it. Stick around. You're with John Cardillo, filling in for Glenn, the Glenn Beck Program.
0: You're listening.
2: You're listening. To the Glenn Beck Program. The Glenn Beck Program.
1: Mercury.
2: To the Glenn Beck program. Welcome back to the Glenn Beck program. I'm John Cardillo, sitting in for Glenn. Give us a call 727 Beck eight 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 seven two seven Beck. If you've been listening to the show either this hour or the last hour, I've mentioned a couple of times that I sat on a safety and security task force that was convened out of Harvard Law School, and I had mentioned that it was a little bit of foreshadowing. You know, Tiffany, I went back to foreshadowing from high school English. And it's because Harvard, for better or worse, tends to be the place that uh, academia, business, uh, many politicians look to for solutions on an issue. They tend to be a leader on on many issues. And Harvard Law School really is, whether whether it's true or not, I don't know, but it seems to be, the, the premier law school in the world. I think many people would argue that if you're a Harvard Law graduate, you'll always make money. You'll always get a job. You'll always be given that that level of respect that you might not be if you graduate from any program at any other university. So when Harvard University starts to legitimize Sharia law, we all need to wake up and take a long look at this, and, and, and they're doing that, aren't they?
1: They're doing that. Harvard has an Islamic legal studies program, and what's very interesting is they have a fellowship as well, and it's listed under law and social change programs. So again, it goes back to social change and social justice, uh, because... You know, Sharia law is so just, but Th- This
2: is the part that I don't <laughs> get, though. The people who run Harvard University are the most progressive people on the planet. Sharia law is Everything they despise, and Sharia law despises them.
1: Exactly. Listen, at Harvard, there are opportunities now for postdoctoral and faculty level scholars to conduct research on policies related to all aspects of Islamic law. Now, I want to give some examples of Sharia law. This basically says that if you engage in premarital sex, you have to receive a hundred lashes adulterers are stoned obviously there are harsh laws concerning punishments for homosexuality hands and feet are cut off for thieving if you convert from Islam you become a Christian again that's punishable by death in some of the countries we talked about earlier.
2: Yeah, so this this doesn't really comport with, say, <laughs> transgenderism and criminal justice right, reform. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. These two things are, uh, tend to live mutually exclusively of one another.
1: But this is, this is the thing. When it comes to the left, there is no intellectual consistency.
2: It's so weird. I mean, that's the only word I can think of. Just, this is just so bizarre to me, so weird.
1: I know. I wonder how they're going to address people who actually attend those classes by their gender preferred pronouns like Z and
2: Z. Right, exactly. How they Address women taking those classes because I would assume that there aren't many Sharia female Sharia judges out there.
1: No, I, yeah. I think that there's a shortage of those.
2: You know, it just it blows my mind. It, it it blows my mind that Harvard would do this, and they really believe that they're enlightened and they're they're uh, that they're 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 giving their students and their faculty such a wide range of topics from which to learn. When in reality, and look, maybe I'm just a little uh, sensitive to this because I see the intelligence, I I see what is really happening, what the unsanitized version that the mainstream media is not uh, that the mainstream media is not giving us, that they're giving people the sanitized version, and I realize that that this again going back to something we spoke about earlier, this is going to be seen as weakness. To me, a program like this. Legitimizes the groups in places like Dearborn, Michigan, and Toledo, Ohio, who want Sharia law locally.
1: Of course. Well, listen, moral relativism and postmodernism in academia has weakened us to our core because it's a notion that says, you know, who are we to judge? All cultures and civilizations are created equal. That's why Western civilization has been done away with. And now we're importing Islamic legal studies in Harvard. I mean, as if the two are compatible somehow.
2: And, And what's even what's even odder about all this is that it's not as if our nation is what are we one but there maybe is 1% of the United States population is Muslim, and, and a subset of that uh, would adhere to Sharia, maybe 50%. I mean, yeah, conservatively, I saw some of the studies, About 50% want some adherence to Sharia. So we're talking about uh, a million out of 300 and some odd million people, and Harvard University is creating courses.
1: Right, but it's always about the minority, right? It was the same thing with the transgender and gender-neutral bathrooms. I mean, they were basically catering to such a minuscule... Um, percentage of the right, population? That it, yeah, that's, if it doesn't matter.
2: Right, it doesn't matter, and, and we shouldn't have. I've said, like 0. 0. I would like
1: 003 percent. I think it
2: was. You don't set public policy for eleven people. <laughs> you just you just don't do it. You're with the Glenn Beck program. I'm John Cardillo, sitting in for Glenn.